This week on This Week in Blurns Ball. Actual baseball news. Actual bracket news. Tom Selleck's mustache. Holy zombie Jesus. Welcome to This Week in Blurns Ball, where mom's friendly robot company can't save us now. I'm your co-host, Benjamin Bloom, and with me, as always, is Jacob Morris. We are still in the uh, in the upside down in terms of, you know, staying apart and no professional sports and washing our hands, which I don't know about you. Did you ever wash your hands before we were told it could save our lives? Uh occasionally i don't think i have washed my hands this much in my entire life as i have in the last couple of months like i don't think i washed my hands ever this much it's now that i think about it a little gross how little i washed my hands in retrospect it's like we thought of it as a guideline that's not a good thing i i apologize to everyone i have ever shaken hands with before this (laughs) Uh, so our original plan for today was to dive into our This Week in Blurns Ball movie madness bracket, but in a strange twist of fate, we actually have some legitimate baseball news to talk about. Yeah, so Jeff Passan of ESPN revealed that they are actually talking about starting a baseball season in some bizarre format. Uh, So the basic idea is, is that there would be a restart of spring training in May, and then perhaps late May, early June, there would be a uh, quarantine season. So the entire season would take place in Arizona uh, until such a time that it's safe to play in other places. There would be no fans. And uh, that's pretty much the extent of it, that everybody would be quarantined in one place to play baseball. And then they would just party at Lake Havasu every weekend. <laughs> Essentially, yes. But uh, some more details of it. There would be up to four and a half months that the players would just be sequestered by themselves. No family, no friends. I mean, other than your baseball friends. Uh, it would be played essentially at Chase Field and the 10 surrounding um, spring training facilities. There would be some accommodations, including potentially... Uh, robot umpires so that the umpire at home plate could maintain uh, safe social distancing from the batter and catcher and some other wacky things including the potential of weekend doubleheaders so seven inning uh, scheduled doubleheaders so they could have as many games as possible in one season and I think I read somewhere that Scott Boris was angling for triple headers daily at Chase Field so something to that effect. That would be nuts. I mean, can you imagine them playing in like the 105 degree heat at Chase Field in the middle of the day? They they do have that retractable roof, which is nice, and it, it's 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 an enjoyable ballpark. Like they kept it 
nice and cool when I was there as a teenager. <laughs> that's, that's fair, but it, it sounds like it's a recipe for a very strange season if they even do go ahead with it. I... I just can't see the players getting on board with the, you might have to be sequestered away from family and friends for up to four and a half months so that we can have baseball for, you know, the people. Yeah, you know, telling people who are making upwards of, you know, even on the low end, upwards of like $5 million a year. Oh, by the way, you're going to be living in ASU student housing. Nothing against ASU student housing, but, you know, when you're used to not that, and then it, it, it's it's pretty much like a summer camp for pro athletes now that I think about it, which, I mean, I could see a lot going wrong with it. Yeah, it sounds like the plot of a bad movie. Uh, and that leads us directly into, let's talk about some baseball movies. Yes, some good, some bad, some confusing. So... We're going to start with our 1 versus 16 seeds today. Uh, which side of the bracket do you want to begin on? Do you want to begin on Field of Dreams or Bull Durham? Uh, let's uh, get things started with Field of Dreams, which, I mean, for the both of us, we had Field of Dreams and Bull Durham as 1 and 1A, one so fortunately we were able to have a bracket with two number one seats so we wouldn't have to you know, argue right away against those two titans. Yes, so... Field of Dreams. Uh, for anyone who's listening to this podcast and hasn't watched Field of Dreams, go watch Field of Dreams. I'm going to pause here, and you're going to watch Field of Dreams. So how was Field of Dreams, everybody? Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I've totally seen Field of Dreams. Perhaps the greatest baseball movie ever made, but it's not just a movie about baseball. It's a movie about family. It's a movie about America. It's a movie about James Earl Jones writing Catcher in the Rye. Uh, it's a movie about Joe Jackson if he was a right-handed hitter. It's a movie about so much more than baseball. Uh, but the basic plot is Kevin Costner is an Iowa farmer, and he hears a voice from, maybe it's God, telling him to plow under his field and build a baseball diamond, and if you build it, he will come. He being Joe Jackson and the 1919 Chicago White Sox, a.k.a. the Black Sox, and he builds this magical baseball diamond, and sure enough, they come. And of course, he has problems because, you know, he's just plowed under his cash crop. But he goes on a magical journey of discovering baseball and discovering America, and sure enough, everything works out fine for him because baseball is magic. And that's pretty hard to top, I mean, from the get-go, but the number 16 seed in our bracket, which we will be posting our full bracket after this episode for people to peruse and make their own judgments. Although, I mean, it's only our judgment that matters. Uh, going up against Field of Dreams, I mean, that's an unwelcome draw for anyone in any type of bracketology, is Million Dollar Arm, based on a true story of, of two uh, Indian cricketers who had auditioned for a chance at a professional major league baseball tryout, you know, like some, there was, this was like in the mid that two thousands where, you know, an American noticed, wait a minute, there's a sport with a, with a that's popular in a nation of a billion people called cricket, and the 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 bowling is very similar to pitching. What if I can tap into this market and find the potential, you know, next great reserve of 
baseball pitchers. I mean, getting to batsmen, that would actually be a, a more interesting uh, movie from my perspective. But anyway, they went to decide to go for bowlers. And so it follows the journey of John Hamm and, you know, searching for these, the, the million dollar arm, literally. In terms of like the real life story, you know, like, both guys did end up in the minors, I believe, in the Pirates minor league system. And, I mean, still, like, pretty incredible for them not knowing baseball in the first place. But it runs into the rare uh, rare Disney movie category of, wait a minute, the true story didn't even end close to suit to medium happy. So they couldn't inflate it as much as they wanted to. Like, there's no scene of, like, the the two uh, kids running out onto PNC field and John Hamm teary eyed in the, in the bleachers. So coming in at a disadvantage, but still I enjoyed it for seeing John Hamm play a human. And I do love cricket. Like unabashedly, I started watching cricket in journalism school when I had insomnia and the cricket world cup was on and a close friend of mine, you know, like, caught me up to speed on what it is I was watching. It is a very interesting sport, and I do agree with you there that probably the batsmen would have been the better guys to go after, but it it is John Hamm, and what does he know about cricket other than they throw very hard? And uh, it did make for an interesting movie. Uh, yeah, the Disneyfication of it, it didn't give them a lot to go with, but it was a very interesting story, nonetheless. And so now we're at the point where we need to, you know, like poke holes in each other's movies. And uh, you're going to make me poke holes in Field of Dreams, aren't you? I am going to make you poke holes in Field of Dreams now. Well, oh, God, this is this is horrible. Well, there's um, even Ray Liotta was amazing. He even made a joke about Ty Cobb, which was really funny. We didn't like the son of a bitch when he was alive. <laughs> and he did this Ray Liotta laugh. Yes, yeah. Oh, man. That was quite the movie. Uh, it really, really was. And I think there's a reason why everybody holds it up there as kind of perhaps the baseball movie. Because it's more than just about baseball. Uh, now, uh, would Does you like... Does it lose, for being more about baseball? For being more about, you know, life and fathers and sons and emotions and the real J.D. Salinger then. <laughs> I mean, the ending of that movie, every single time, no matter how many times I've seen it, I cry. Because he oh. finally goes and has that catch with his dad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's like one of the greatest movie endings. One of my most, I should say, one of my most favorite movie endings in movie history. And, you know, they're even, it has such like cultural cachet that you know, the only reason people know about Iowa is because of the caucus and because of Field of Dreams. Yeah. And most people don't know what a caucus is. What or is caucus a caucus? Is. How do they work? I, I'm a political junkie, and I still don't quite get the caucuses. I actually wrote a whole ex article explaining the difference between primaries and caucuses back when the only thing that, in my mind, I had to worry about was, you know, trying to get a ticket to Milwaukee to see the Democratic National Convention. Oh, boy. What a time. January, when nobody knew this was coming. Except <laughs> oh, no, I, I, knew, I knew about this in January. It was just affecting China, but we were like, oh, we should keep an eye on this, right? Ew. 
Nobody knew it was coming this bad. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no one <laughs> Oh, good times back when. So, yeah, st- still haven't explained caucuses to me. But it's so impactful, this movie, that if the MLB season hadn't been completely and totally screwed up, there were plans to have the Chicago White Sox play the New York Yankees on the l- actual Field of Dreams in real-life Iowa this season. And that just sounds like it was a terrific, terrific game they were planning. And it would have only made sense, though, if both teams walked in out of the cornfield and took their positions. Like, like that's the only way I would have accepted it as canon. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They had to do that. Um, I, I wish they had that set up in MLB 20 that you could play that game on that field. That better be bonus content that they're working on right now. I mean, they got the time. (laughs) They've got nothing but time. So shall we turn to poking holes in Million Dollar Arm? I mean, we kind of have to because, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's Swiss cheese, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it's a very Disney-fied version of an okay but not terrific story to begin with uh so they they already change it by saying neither of them were actually cricket guys in the movie they just threw the ball hard uh when in reality they are quite accomplished cricket players that they selected and then to me that actually like that's a more interesting story like it's like you have like crossover athletes exist in other sports like you have you know, rugby league players going over and, you know, like making goes at it in the NFL. You have Australian rules guys, you know, becoming like these monster, like beefy punters in the NFL. You have Michael Jordan doing whatever the hell he was doing with Terry Francona in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's not that difficult to see crossover players. I mean, look at Bo Jackson, for instance, uh, perhaps the greatest athlete just pure athletic specimen of all time. Uh, Jim Thorpe? Jim Thorpe did some crazy stuff back in the day, man. Um, well, I don't have the point of reference for Jim Thorpe. I do have the point of reference for Bo Jackson, where he, he runs up the wall and then guns the ball down to third base on no hops. Uh, there's, there's, there's a debate to be had between the two. Uh, Bo snaps the bat clean over his head. And Jim Thorpe, you know conquer sweden <laughs> yeah uh, they either way again we're into a one one a kind of situation um so where they take out that crossover sport thing in the movie is kind of disappointing to me mm-hmm. and then you know i know i'm poking holes in my own movie here but you know i would have loved to have seen like like i guess it wouldn't have made for a disney movie but we have movies in this bracket where like there's the struggles in the minor leagues and you know, there isn't a clear-cut happy ending, which for these guys in real life, you know, like, they made a go of it in the minors, but that's, you know, sort of where they plateaued. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, otherwise we don't get the Disney ending in this one, though. So, and they really wanted that Disney ending. So, what are we going to do? Which, you can't turn everything into miracle. But this was during Disney's miracle phase. So, they wanted everything to be miracle. And as they should be, Miracle is like a top three sports movie of all time. Well, I mean, I think we also are left with the situation of, if you look at uh, The Athletic just came out with their top 100 sports movies of all time, and they ranked Field of Dreams number 21, and uh, 
uh, million dollar arm didn't didn't register at all. So it's very difficult to go what? up against. <laughs> it's very difficult to go up against what some of the best sports writers in the world called the twenty first best sports movie ever. Uh, for million dollar arm, it had quite the uphill battle here. And you know, in terms of watchability, which is a made up statistic that we're going to count as gospel from now on. The watchability factor of Field of Dreams versus Million Dollar Arm, it's it, it it's unquestioned. Like <laughs> Field of Dreams, it's the perfect TBS Sunday movie. If it's on, you're watching it. If you're you know if you're rifling through your I guess back in the day you know VHS or DVD collection and you can't decide what to watch, Field of Dreams. It's perfect. It's a good evening movie. It's a good afternoon movie. Million Dollar Arm, once you've seen it, you know what's happening, and you're not as gripped to relive. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, I think, exactly it. Field of Dreams was the first DVD I bought and the first Blu-ray I ever owned. Uh, Million Dollar <laughs> Arm, I think I caught on cable once, and I was like, yeah, okay, I've seen this movie, I know it now. Uh, Field of Dreams, I think one of my goals in life is to get Kevin Costner to sign my Field of Dreams uh, Blu-ray uh, hard book that I have. Uh, like that is that is an awesome awesome movie and it is just so, so ingrained as part of my life. I think we're on the same page here that Field of Dreams wins this battle. And I think it moves on to the Sweet Sixteen and you know with 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 uh, commiserations to Million Dollar Arm you know like a maybe another couple years in the minors get get those skills built up or honestly. Go make a go of it as pro cricketers. Like there's there's money to be had, and you know, like there's great cricket movies, you know, that have that that can be made. One shining moment. <laughs> we we got to make sure that is featured at least you know seven times an episode. So we now move on to the other side of the bracket, where I defend the scout against fourth best sports movie of all time as determined by the athletic bull durham this is this so, is an uphill climb <laughs> so you thought we were going to stop with one kevin costner uh, movie today you you sir would be wrong what many people see as the superior kevin costner baseball movie this is for people for for people who haven't seen this again this is one of those times where you have to pause Go watch it, and don't watch a cable edit version where they take out all the fucking and the shitting and the <laughs> swearing. <laughs> Great movie, terrific movie. And by the <laughs> and by those swearing, I meant, of course, you know, like the use of those swear words. <laughs> so it follows a minor league team's season from the perspective of, you know, several compelling characters, the, uh, the bonus baby hotshot, uh, you know, pitcher who is just in the minors, you know, getting warmed up and, you know, getting some issues worked out before, you know, inevitably reaching the majors, the grizzled player to be named later catcher, whose job it is, is to corral this, this bronking buck. And of course, Susan Sarandon, who, you know, was ubiquitous in the 80s and 90s as just, you know, just an 
awesome actor and you know it, it, it follows like the love triangle between the three of them it follows the characters on the team from from <laughs> he's a Methodist preacher to you know the to the great you know like uh, shower room lollygaggers speech it has broadcasters it has you know umpires it has you know teammates fighting each other as much as they're fighting the other team it's got some of the best one-liners in in movie history you know anything flying that far that fast should have a stewardess on it after one home run is hit off of uh, nuke lelouch um you've got the you've got the perfect reenactment of the mound visit where they're not even talking about baseball at this point. Chalkers are out of line. Live chickens need to be sacrificed. We need to figure out a gift for Jimmy's wedding. You know, we're going through a lot of shit here, coach. Throw more ground balls. Strikeouts are fascist. <laughs> oh, and of course the book of cliches, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. <laughs> You've got you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a fucking boat. It it is perhaps the perfect baseball movie, and I know I'm arguing against myself here, but it it is. I I can't deny that. It, it's got hard. It's got sandpaper. It's got you not a clear cut happy ending because you know Crash never makes it back to the majors. He does reach the somewhat dubious home run minor league home run record which is you know an incredible accomplishment like kevin costner you know he's got a hell of a swing also when he talks to himself is you know like some of the best like sports pep talks are kevin costner you know just absolutely just just tearing himself a new one in the batter's box yeah it and he also he ends up a minor league manager at the end it's not entirely a sad ending for him and and new Nuke Lelouch makes it to the big leagues only to be arrested and sent to Shawshank Prison. <laughs> We're going to get to crossover territory here. I mean, su suffice to say, you know, that movie was, I mean, like calling it the slap shot of baseball would be a disservice to both movies, but it's in that vein of, you know, like scrappy misfits, you know, completely off color humor that, would not be able to fly today and just an absolute national treasure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a reason why both of the number one seeds are preserved in the library of Congress as historically important films. Now, uh, the difference between the number one on the number one in Bull Durham and the number one in field of dreams is that Bull Durham is truly about baseball. That's a movie about baseball, and Field of Dreams is a movie about baseball as a metaphor for America. Field of Dreams tries to be really deep. Bull Durham does not. Bull Durham is just, yeah. we're here to talk about baseball, and this is what baseball is like, especially in the minor leagues. Rose goes in the front. <laughs> yeah. So, shall we talk about the scout? Yes, because, and I will say this, I miss Brendan Fraser. Yeah, what is he up to now? I've heard some things, but mostly it's just a chance to remember to, well, not to remember, he's still very much alive, to look back on a very entertaining career. So let's dive right into it. Meanwhile, I'm going to think about Blast from the Past and his uh, guest arc on Scrubs. So this is uh, roughly Encino Man era, Brendan Fraser and Albert Brooks. <laughs> 
Uh, Albert Brooks plays Al, a failed New York Yankees scout uh, who's uh, banished to Mexico to look for players, and he runs into Brendan Fraser, who's playing Steve Nebraska. He's an American who throws an 103-mile-an-hour fastball and hits everything, uh, and every time he hits, it's a home run. So he immediately signs him up to play for the Yankees, but it turns out that he is mentally disturbed. And the best way to put it is mentally disturbed is that when he gets to the airport and they get briefly separated, he freaks out. Uh, he screams in his sleep at an unknown assailant, that kind of mentally disturbed. Uh, basically, the Yankees sign him because he's such a good baseball player, but they demand he gets psychiatrically evaluated before he plays his first game. Uh, so... Of course, the way that they picked psychiatrists in 90s movies is it was the first one in the phone book, Dr. H. Aaron. Uh, they find out that he was severely <laughs> abused as a child. Like, this is not something you would put in your average run of the comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And he's blocked out pretty much his entire memory of his early life. And that's why he's, you know, nuts. Uh, so... Uh, they end up treating him. The Yankees reach the World Series, uh, and he's contractually obligated to pitch in Game One because that's how baseball contracts work. Absolutely. Uh, everybody's ready. It's going to be his debut. It's Game One of the World Series. He freaks out. He ends up on the roof of Yankee Stadium. They get a helicopter to go get him. Uh, he's freaking out. He's refusing. And then Al tells him, "Okay, you could walk away from it. No strings attached." And then because he was so selfless, he says, "Okay, I'm happy now." He goes, he makes this big entrance, and he pitches an immaculate game. 27 up, 27 down, 81 strikes, and he hits two home runs. And the Yankees win. And then everybody's happy. The end. So not only is it far-fetched from a, you know, small detail standpoint, from a big detail standpoint, this movie is... Out of left field. It is perhaps the most outlandish plot. And not only outlandish, kind of insensitive to people who experience childhood trauma. Just a little bit, yeah. Uh, it, this movie couldn't decide if it wanted to be a comedy or a drama, and instead it tried to be both and wound up being neither. And that's the problem. I mean, like, so many, like, like other movies try to walk that line with, you know, diminishing returns. But now that we're in the sports world, it's like we've seen sports movies blend comedy and tragedy before. It's like it's it's a hallmark of sports movies where there's some type of adversity, there's some challenge to overcome, and then, you know, there's funny moments along the way. This one seems sort of scattershot. And, I mean, I'm a huge Albert Brooks fan. I mean, like, Hank Scorpio is who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> Scorpio... He'll sting you with his <laughs> dreams of power and wealth. Scorpio. Scorpio! His only obsession is caring about his employees' health. Scorpio! Watch out <laughs> for his... Oh, damn it, I forget how it goes. I know this... Uh, it's about, like, a flexible like, uh, dental plans, and on Fridays they... Vacation a year. Yeah, oh, man. Neither of us should sing. No, really, really this topic. And I like Brandon Fraser. At the time, none of us realized how bad the CGI in The Mummy was. This was pre-The Mummy, Brandon Fraser. Oh, yeah, this is, like you said, this is Encino Man, so back when Polly Shore was a person. Right? 
the, you know the, they want to make like... Encino Man two. There's there's a script out there for Encino Man two. I believe it. I mean, this is like this is post Airheads though, which in it, in and of itself was a great movie. <laughs> yes, this is post Airheads, but pre the Mummy, Brendan Fraser. This movie is just so out there though. Eighty-one consecutive strikes. You'd think at some point they would take a ball or put something in play, or lean into one. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, if they're directly over the plate, fine. But or foul someone off, something off. Like yeah, like, yeah. You're telling me like not one dying quail, not one Texas leaguer. Yep, I'm talking Bull Durham again. <laughs> Nothing. And then two home runs too. Okay, so fine. You're giving up the DH because your pitcher's such a great hitter. Fine, I will give you that. But you're hitting your pitcher ninth if he's such a great hitter? I mean, this guy apparently hits home runs off everybody ever, every single time he comes to the plate, and you're not hitting him fourth? There's, there's, there's too much. I, I cannot endorse this as much as I appreciate Brendan Fraser and Hank Scorpio. I mean... <laughs> There, there are some, there are some things where you can be like, oh, it's just a movie. We can, it's like, yeah, totally. A little kid can, you know, rupture every tendon in his body and become a major league pitcher. But no, not, 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 not to this extent. This is, there's some, there's some things that are just like, the payoff isn't there. <laughs> Fair enough. So again, I think we know who moves on, and it's Bull Durham. I think so. <laughs> so, do we move down the bracket or do we jump down and go to the number two seed? I kind of want to do. I kind of want to change things up because you know, like we. I, I figure we, you know, like we start off at least like with one like like heavy favorite versus underdog, and then we do like a mid tier mid tier matchup. I, I kind of want to, you know, go for an eight versus nine if if you're up for it. Okay, let's go with the eight versus nines. So, which side do we want to start on? Do we want to do Mr. Baseball versus Mr. Three Thousand, or Damn Yankees versus For the Love of the Game? I mean, we could get the natural hat-trick Kevin Costner out of the way right now. <laughs> yeah, let's go with the Kevin Costner out of the way right now. And so this right. is the Kevin Costner episode. So. <laughs> this is absolutely the Kevin Costner episode. So, like you said, we have the number eight seed, Damn Yankees, versus the number nine seed for Love of the Game. And, I mean, I didn't know this movie existed until, like, one afternoon in high school. Again, like, I'm pretty sure we're just shills for the Turner Broadcasting Station, because I don't know what it was, man. They just showed all the best baseball movies. Yeah. A TBS, I, the, I think they only existed to show baseball, is the real way to put it. <laughs> they showed Atlanta Braves games and Kevin Costner baseball movies, and that was about it. And and it, and it was perfect. Like it, And it was good. <laughs> and it was good. Alright, so let's talk for love of the game. I mean, this is the opposite of Kevin Costner. At the, this is the opposite of Kevin Cost of the Kevin Costner sports spectrum. At this point, he's you know he's like on his last legs of his professional career. He's you know about as miserable as Kevin Costner can get. Like he's veering into Harrison Ford territory. Yeah. And it's the last game of the season. They're, they're, his contract's up for debate. His future's sort of in flux. And then we find out his personal life is kind of sideways. 
but it's one afternoon. Billy Chaplin, the Detroit Tigers at Yankee Stadium, and it's him and his battery mate John C. Riley. Which, by the way, John C. Riley, an absolute stud in this movie. Yeah. And of course, manager. And of course, manager J.K. Simmons being all pictures of Spider Man. <laughs> and so, the afternoon unfolds. You know. Uh, Billy Chappell's on the mound. Everything's hurting already. And he's talking to himself, you know, a, a classic Costner trope. And slowly but surely, he makes his way through a through the start. And you see, like, flashbacks of his life, of his relationship, of his career. And before you know it, he's pitching a perfect game. Billy Chappell, who everyone had written off, including himself, is pitching a perfect game. No one wants to disturb it. He's out there hurting. It's the Yankees. They're doing everything they can to screw with them. Like, um, there's a few bunts. There's a few, like, close plays. And then all of it, you know, like, it ties up. It, it all, like, wraps up in, like, this exciting, exciting, you know, like, exciting climax where, you know, he gets the perfect game. He flips the ball to his coach. And on the ball, it says, tell him I'm through for love of the game, Billy. <laughs> and he goes off and he gets the girl. He's done with baseball. He's found something that matters more to him. But he goes out with one hell of a bang. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie also features one of my favorite athlete mindset things, where as he's getting started for the game, he's on the mound. There's all the yelling and cheering. And then he gets himself into the zone and everything quiets out. Uh, and from what I've heard from athletes who are really at that elite level, they actually can do that. Uh, so that's a very cool... Oh, was You're absolutely right. That was, like, just cinematically, it works so well, too, because, like, you hear, like, sort of, like, like the, 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 the hum, and it's silence. Like, it's clear the mechanism, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's it's very impressive, and it's a very good movie. Uh, but we're putting it up against Damn Yankees, which is uh, the entire opposite end of the spectrum. It's a musical comedy adapted from the 1955 Broadway musical. Uh, and it's an it's an adaption of a Faustian tale. Uh, so there's Joe Boyd, a middle-aged fan of the Washington Senators who's obsessed with them beating the Yankees. Uh, and he makes a deal with the devil to become... Uh, to help the Senators beat the Yankees and win the pennant. So what the devil does is he turns him into a dashing young baseball player named Joe Hardy, and he plays for the uh, the Senators to help them become this great team again. Uh, but the devil has given him an escape clause if by the uh, end of September he, ch he chooses to go back to his wife, then he gets this, uh, he gets to have his soul back. Uh, so, they, the devil, of course, has all of these tricks to try and get him to stay, uh, they have this thing that there's perhaps this guy who's, that Joe is actually perhaps this corrupt minor leaguer playing under a pseudonym, uh, they say that there, there's all these things that go on that say, no, he's fine, and then uh, he realizes that he's been tricked, and he gets the, they beat the Yankees, Washington wins the pennant, uh, and he saves his soul from the devil. And again, it's like it's a hallmark of 
you know, like musicals and it's like the expression damn Yankees on that alone, like I should be a fan of it. You lost me at musical. I'm sorry. This is this is personal bias coming into play here. I mean, in my head I'm picturing oh you mean like a like 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 I'm seeing the movie just being like can we get to the baseball part? I mean, of course, young me seeing this like doesn't quite understand, you know, like Faustian bargains. And I mean, watching the Yankees lose is always a treat, but some of it seemed a bit too musical. And it was a 50s era musical too, where they aren't exactly dramatizing the baseball. They are singing and dancing. And there are some complex singing, dancing numbers because it's a 50s musical and there's not a lot of baseball in it. Now, What's impressive is that in the 50s musical movie, they had a Mickey Mantle cameo. You did not get cameos like that in the 50s. And that in itself is impressive. And, I mean, I would have loved to have seen, you know, like, uh, Mickey Mantle tread the boards, as it were. <laughs> that would have been something. Just, you know, break out like like, like, a, like a song and dance number. A soft you know, shoe for like, Mickey. That would that would have been something else, and of course you know damn Yankees like it's like it's it's a Broadway classic. It's you know it's one of like the it's one of the more celebrated you know classic musicals. As a baseball movie, I got to give it to For Love of the Game though. It's that movie had a lot of sandpaper, had a lot of like actual baseball in it. And for a formulaic 90s love story wrap-up ending, it's in the upper tier for me personally, mostly because, you know, no one is experiencing insomnia on the Pacific Northwest. I mean, <laughs> I just got that. Um, I mean, hey. I've, got a, I've got a soft spot for Damn Yankees. It was one of the first musicals that I was ever really exposed to. Uh, it has some really great song and dance numbers, there's some really great songs, but I have to really cede this position to you as a baseball movie. It's not really a baseball movie. It is a movie musical that happens to be folk that happens to have its uh, backing being baseball. And more specifically the Faustian bargain that this man strikes regarding baseball. There isn't a lot of baseball in it. And it could have like we said with some other movies, it could have just as easily been he strikes this Faustian bargain around football. It's just baseball was the sport of the time at the time. Uh, One thing, and this is like, I know this is like piling on, but like how I judge a musical is if you say the name of the musical, I can start humming something from it right away, and I can't with Damn Yankees. That's fair. I, I mean, I can, but that I think, again, is a product of the exposure to it at such a young age. Also, how were you not like? How was Damn Yankees your first musical and not Fiddler? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's my first, but I know it's an early one. I I can just remember being scared of the Frumacera scene in Fiddler oh and just being God. like, because I think I saw it at Stratford and they went all out with like the effects, and I was like five, so it was terrifying. That would be terrifying, yes. And then our other. Although, Sorry, I was going to say, no, uh, on uh, 
No, I was just going to tell him more Fiddler on the Roof jokes. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on, yes. Yeah, so our other 8-9 battle, the Misters. Mr. Baseball versus Mr. 3000. Ooh, this one, I know there was no, like, proper bracketology. I think we set this up just to be a Mr. versus Mr. Yeah, but this one is, this one's a real interesting one. I think this is the first one that we really are going to have a struggle with. Because they are they're very so. similar movies, too. And there's very little to separate them. So Mr. Baseball is that... Oh, damn it. Is, is, uh, Magnum P.I. Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck <laughs> is a washed-up player, and he gets traded to Japan, where he has to integrate himself into Japanese culture, well, integrating himself into Japanese baseball, too. And he ends up chasing the Japanese single-season home run record while dealing with the uh, pain of being a white player in Japan chasing this traditional Japan, this long-held Japanese record and how he deals with that. Also, he ends up romancing his manager's daughter. And then, Which is always, you know, a normal part of any baseball season. <laughs> of course. And then there's Mr. 3000, Bernie Mac. And would you like to summarize that one for us? So, uh, I forget his name. He was in the on the Bernie Mac show. What's his name again? Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> So Bernie Mac is, you know, at the end of his career, he gets his, he gets what he thinks is this 3,000th hit. He celebrates, and he's like, no, nah, I'm done. It's like, no, but we still have the rest of the game to play. So, like, he's sort of a, like a me-first type of guy, and that's set up clearly from the beginning. He retires immediately after getting his 3,000th hit from the Milwaukee Brewers, you know, Milwaukee finally getting a chance in the spotlight. And, you know, he's living the life of the retired athlete, you know, like Mr. 3000 car dealership, Mr. 3000 restaurant. Statist- the statisticians go back. They find out that he's actually three hits short. So 40-year-old Bernie Mac is like, nope, I'm going back and I'm getting my, I'm getting my three hits. But he comes back. He is hardly the player he used to be. He's, you know, like he struggles to gel with, you know, like the much younger clubhouse and, you know, his manager who he, you know, straight up abandoned during, I think it was a pennant race when he had retired after getting number 3000. And then over time, like he, 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 like he finds his humility. He like, he endears himself to his teammates and his managers. And then he, like, he gets closer and closer to that 3000 hit. And again, spoiler alert, he has a chance to get that 3,000th hit, but instead he decides to do the noble thing and lay down a sack bunt so that his team can reach the playoffs. And he ends up as Mr. 2,999, but he ends up a better person for it, which is a nice way to wrap it up. Uh-huh. It's a very nice way to wrap it up. And he buys the ice cream truck at the end with uh, 2,999 flavors and he hangs out behind the Little League field. Yeah, I mean that that that's a terrible business plan. I mean, like I couldn't even name you two thousand nine hundred ninety nine flavors unless they're all just variants of vanilla. <laughs> French vanilla, regular vanilla, chocolate, French chocolate, Belgian chocolate. I I really don't know. I'm running out of flavors here. Uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Cookies and cream, uh, cookies and two percent milk, cookies and whole milk, uh, strawberry. Blueberry, raspberry, rocky raspberry. road. Yeah, it's like we. I'm sure we could get to 2,999 ice cream flavors. 
I liked Mr. 3000. Yes, there's the whole white man's going to teach Japan how to play baseball, which, eh, I mean, Japan's got a pretty good baseball culture in its own right. But you see Tom Selleck slowly, you know, become more, you know, aware and respectful of, you know, like the Japanese baseball customs. And although I do love when he's teaching his teammates how to how to shit talk in, in English. <laughs> yes, that's a terrific scene. Uh, now, what I liked about Mr. 3002 is how much buy-in they got from the actual MLB and uh, supporting pieces. Like, there's the guys from PTI showing up and interviewing him. There's actual MLB stars showing up as bit pieces in it. And there was a lot of MLB and ESPN and Fox Sports cameos there uh, for what was substantially a second-rate comedy movie. <laughs> I mean, like, grand scheme of things, second rate, but, I mean, yeah, it was it was fun as a kid to be like, whoa, these are, like, real people. Like, And this was in the Like Mike era of, you know, getting those leagues to buy in, to get kids to watch the actual sport. And, I mean, there were no magic, sh- magic shoes in this one. But fun fact, we have our, we have another crossover appearance. Uh, Dennis Haysbert was in Mr. 3000. No. <laughs> yes, I'm serious. Really? Huh. Yeah. Serrano was in Japan. Guess Jobu did not favor him. <laughs> I suppose not. And, I mean, this this is going to, this is definitely a difficult one because, you know, like, different eras, like early 90s, early 2000s, you know, like, Movies have changed a lot. I mean, Magnum P.I. is still Magnum P.I. regardless, but then again, Bernie Mac is still Bernie Mac. Well, yeah, uh, I'm inclined to pick Mr. 3000 just because there's the racial implications of Mr. Baseball. Uh, White man teaches Japan to play baseball the American way. Just kind of... It rubs me the wrong way. To a Whereas degree. Bernie Mac learns to be, you know, a kindler, gentler Bernie Mac. That works for all time. And plus, I miss Bernie Mac. <laughs> I miss Bernie Mac, too. So, all right, so do we have both nine seeds moving on? Both nine seeds have pulled off the upset. That is impressive. I mean, like, and you were right. These matchups, like, there was a lot more thinking we had to do. It's It's not... You know, cut and dry, like Kevin Costner beats John Hamm any day of the week. Like, that just that's just a life thing. But Kevin Costner versus the institution of Broadway? That's a tough debate because, you know, I'm pretty sure Broadway is going to be around longer than Kevin Costner. Well, I mean, the way things are going, who knows? But Ooh. I would think so. <laughs> Uh, one error and or omission I would like to correct. A few weeks ago, I said David X. Cohen was dead. I was wrong about that. I confused him I with another say, Simpsons producer. On, he's not dead. Yeah, I we confused, did it. We brought him back. We brought him back. No, I confused him with another producer from The Simpsons. So, Mr. Cohen, if you're listening, I sincerely apologize. And I would still like to have that game of catch with you. <laughs> Yes, I would. Uh, so I think that brings us to our <laughs> Futurama episodes of the week. Yes, it does. And this week, I have one that we haven't picked before. Hooray! <laughs> At least I hope I do. <laughs> All right, so stop me if we have picked this one before. 
The Deep South. No, we have not heard this one before. Excellent. It's the Lost City of Atlanta episode. And it's perfect because this episode is brought to you by Ted Turner. So they go, uh, the, the Planet Express crew goes out on a fishing trip. Leela, of course, with her own harpoon and keeps harpooning boots or Bender's ass. <laughs> this must be, this isn't a boot. It's at least 20 times as heavy boots, 10 pairs. Trade a 10 pair. Um, And then, you know, they're dragged underwater by a colossal mouth bass. You know, the professor has a giant pill that, you know, will keep them from succumbing to water pressure and able to breathe underwater. They can't swallow that. Well, then good news. It's a suppository. And Fry, of course, discovers a mermaid, falls deeply in love with her, and she takes him back to what we discover, A-T-L-A-N-T. And we're thinking, oh, it's going to be an Atlantis episode. That seems about right. Nope, Lost City of Atlanta. And of course, the Coca-Cola factory, you know, being underwater for so long, the sugar helped them, you know, adapt to underwater living so quickly. You know, there's still the Delta Hub, Turner Field, uh, another Delta Hub. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then, of course, you have the Donovan song, you know, way down below the ocean. I'm not going to sing it, but it's such a good song. And Donovan, of course, narrates the... (laughs) Uh, the Chamber of Commerce video about how Atlanta decided to turn itself into an island and become a bigger Delta hub, but then it sank. And, of course, episode ends with, you know, Fry realizing he's not meant to live underwater after all, after discovering fish mating rituals. Why couldn't she be a lady on the bottom and a fish on top? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a classic one. Uh, so, I have picked... The problem with poplars. Good, that was going to be the one I was going to pick, but then I'm like, no, pick pick the deep south. I feel like I feel like that one's going to be discussed by by someone else. There we go. We're on the same wavelength here. So uh, the Planet Express crew stranded from a mission discovers a planet that's covered in tiny, edible, and delicious uh, food. They come home uh, and they import them for fishy joes uh, as a tasty snack. It turns out that the uh, edible food that they've discovered as a tasty snack is actually the young of the Omicronian race. Um, (laughs) And the Omicronians decide that as vengeance, they will eat the young of the human race. As the Omicronians are wont to do. I mean, Fishy Joe's, like, that's a a great, you know, spot from there. I mean, a whole bender full. (laughs) There's a Fry and Bender's Poplar song. Also, uh, oh, uh, uh, the vegetarians, man. Uh, it's like like one of the waterfall children is the environmental activist who gets eaten at the end. We taught a lion to eat tofu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure at one point the professor says, I don't know who you are, but get the hell out of here. That sounds like the professor. Um, of course, they try and feed Leela to the Omicronians, and then Zap tries to replace her with a, an ape with a ponytail. <laughs> a couple of great episodes this week. And of course, you know, the fact that it alludes to the trouble with triples. <laughs> That's exactly it. So, anything else for our audience this week, Ben? 
I think we were pretty productive. I mean, we got four matchups knocked out of the way. That seems like a reasonable number to to you know go through for. Actually, yeah, that's we keep doing four episodes uh, for movies. We can knock out the first round pretty efficiently. Excellent, as Mr. Burns would say. Now, I don't expect they will all be as quick as the one versus sixteen matchups, but no, we. We're probably going to have some more debates, especially when it comes to what is most likely our most contentious first-round matchup, Sandlot versus Fever Pitch, where neither of us will be willing to give an inch. No, I think that one might need its whole episode to itself. Yeah, that one is just primed for yelling. (laughs) Loud noises! I think we should save that one for last. I, I agree. Yeah, we got it. We got to build up to that. We, we 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 there needs to be some sort of payoff. Exactly. Okay. So I think that brings us to the end of this week in Blurns Ball. Oh, before we sign off again, you can follow us on Twitter. The episode, uh, the episode. Woo. The podcast itself is at twi Blurns Ball. I'm at JMS Morris. And I'm at Benjamin K Bloom. Thank you so much. For listening to this week's episode again if you haven't seen any of these movies now's as good as time as any to you know find them stream them you know procure them however you may and it just makes it makes the time go by and it fills the void of baseball while we wait for you know the lake havasu classic to get underway exactly so for this week in blurns ball i'm jacob morris I'm Benjamin Bloom. Thank you so much for listening. Farewell from the world of tomorrow.